Hello and welcome to The Stack. Today's show is an interesting mix of stories. I speak with Brazilian photographer Gleison Paulino. We also check in with the CEO of Fortune Media, Alan Murray. And we also visit a very charming kiosk in Rougemont. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show with an interview with Alan Murray, CEO of Fortune Media. He is responsible for overseeing the business and editorial operations of the independent media company. Monaco's deputy head of radio, Tom Webb, sat down with him during the World Economic Forum in Davos to discuss the future of the industry. So how important is the world of print for Fortune? Well, Fortune has been a print magazine since 1930. We intend to be a print magazine for a long, long time, but it's a much smaller business, part of our business than it used to be, probably less than 20% of our total revenues. So where is the main focus now? Well, a big part, of course, is digital. We've had a huge expansion of digital over the last couple of years. We've more than tripled our audience. We've more than tripled our digital revenues. We reach 30 million people a month. Uh, actually, more than that, if you count all the licensing agreements and various distribution channels we have for our digital content. So that's just become a much bigger part of our total readership. And then we have a very large executive convening business. We do 20 live events a year. We do as many as 100 virtual events in the course of the year. We have a new training program for next generation CEOs. So we have many other things going on these days besides the print magazine. But we all love the print magazine as kind of the ultimate curation of our content. So 30 million a month online. Yeah, three zero thirty. Yeah, well, that is an impressive figure in terms of print circulation. Where are you? Oh, print circulation is significantly smaller. It's probably around six hundred thousand. Yeah. Who are your audience, and what do they come to you for? I think people come to us for information about business, both how to succeed in business, how to run successful businesses, how the world of business is changing and evolving. And some of our readers also come to us for ideas on investing, where to put their money, how to make more money. So we're here in Davos. The Inflation Reduction Act has been a big talking point. How does it impact your business? Well, it's huge. You know, one of the things I've been coming to Davos on and off for uh, almost 25 years, and the environment has always been part of the conversation here. But what's different this year, really, I think for the first time, is that the business community has taken this on with a really increased degree of seriousness. Every company, every big company now has a net zero commitment for 2050. That has been a huge change over the course of the last three years. And part of what they're doing here is figure out how they actually meet those commitments and how they work together in order to deal with the energy transition and try and get to that net zero target. So it's a big change in the way business thinks, talks, and the way business operates. Another big talking point here in Davos is There's a worrying number of CEOs saying that their companies may not be viable in 10 years if they stick to the current path. Can you explain what is causing this and a potential way out? 
Yeah, sure. It's really interesting. I mean, most CEOs think we're going to have a recession over the course of the next year. Yet that has not been the focus of concern over the course of the last week. What they're really focused on is the bigger transformations that are happening over the next decade. I mean, you have these new technologies, particularly AI, but also data management technologies that really have the capacity and the potential to completely transform almost every business in almost every industry. And so companies are thinking about how do I thrive during that transformation? How do I get on top of that and make sure I'm not one of the companies left behind? Similarly, the energy transition we were talking about, you know, is really going to cause some profound changes in the way business operates as you move away from fossil fuels, you get into more sustainable business models. And so what I find the business leaders here talking about is how do I how do I do that? How do I make these massive transformations that I have to make in order to be successful 10 years down the road. That's really what's captivating people's attention. And other big business transformations, a battle for talent, not just journalists, but staff in general. Is this a long-term trend we're going to see now? How do you retain talent? I think the battle for talent is a long-term trend, and, and, and here's why. The way that businesses create value has changed profoundly over the course of the last few decades. And I'll give you a statistic that helps make that point. If you go back to the 1970s and look at the balance sheets of the Fortune 500 companies, what you'll find is that more than 80% of the value created by those companies on their balance sheets is in stuff, physical stuff. It's do you have plants? Do you have equipment? Do you have oil in the ground? Do you have inventory on the shelves? And if you had the stuff, you could create value. If you look at the balance sheets of the Fortune 500 companies today, what you'll find is more than 85% of the value is what they call intangibles. It's intellectual property. It's the brand connection with the consumer. Those are all things that are much more embedded in human talent, human beings. And so business has become much more about trying to both attract and engage the best talent in order to create value. So I don't think the talent wars, it may have been intensified by the pandemic, people pulling out of the labor force, all of that. But I don't think the talent wars are going to end. I think the nature of business has changed in a way that makes talent the top driver of value and therefore the top priority for companies. So top priority for companies maybe for this year. We've wrapped at Davos. It's mid-January 2023. What are your business priorities? Our business priorities are to cover these big transformations that I was just talking about. Look, we have a, a clear purpose at Fortune to try and provide the information and counsel and advice to help make business better. I come to Davos in part to hear what's top of mind for them. No question what's top of mind for them are these big transformations. The technology transformation, the sustainability transformation, there's a supply chain transformation that's going on because of of changing geopolitics. So our focus over the course of the next year will be how to help businesses survive all of those. Thank you. That was Alan Murray, CEO of Fortune Media, talking to Monaco StoneWeb. And now to my home country of Brazil, 
Photographer and artist Glisson Paulino was born in a small city in the state of Mato Grosso do Sul, and he's currently exhibiting his series of photos, Batismo, at the Brazilian Embassy in London. In a short period of time, he became one of the leading photographers in the country. During his visit to London, I spoke with him at Midori House. Glisson Paulino, welcome to Monaco 24. It's a pleasure to have you over. I've been a fan of your pictures, but it's nice to meet you in person as well. well thank you very much. Glisson, before we talk about your current exhibition at the Brazilian Embassy here in London, I want to know more about your career. You're a renowned photographer. You're based in Sao Paulo. But I love the fact that, I mean, you grew up in a very small town in Brazil. I mean, tell us a bit more about that, because I love that. I mean, I love... You know, you don't need to be born in a, one of the big centers, you know, to actually have an interesting view. And I think probably this influenced your work as well a little bit, right? Yeah, exactly. I actually was born in El Dorado, which is in Mato Grosso do Sul, in the border with uh, Paraná. So I was born there and then I grew up in Campo Grande, Mato Grosso do Sul, which is the capital. But I was in the suburb area. In front of my house, we didn't, I didn't have a neighbor in front. It was just like woods, you know. So like as a child, I was really... It was my playground to go to the, the forest and play with uh, some neighbors around. And uh, it was like very isolated place as well. So it's that kind of like to get to the town was like half an hour away by car. So it kind of was like this was a village as well, pretty much where I kind of grew up. Oh, that's amazing. And But, you know, your sense for photography, was that something that you knew since as a kid or or it started a bit later? Because I know you moved to Vienna when you were 17, right? Yeah, to youth um, program, but I like photography since five years old. Mm-hmm. I remember, like, coming to holidays for, like, visiting parents. And I always, the first thing I would ask when I get to people's houses, like, can I see your family book album? Oh, that's... <laughs> and uh, so... Since I was a kid, I loved I love photography, looking into it. And then my grandparents has like this jar full of like those I can't remember what they call it. Like, do you remember like those ones you can see through? It's like uh, yeah. monocles. Monocles, right? actually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> see. <laughs> so I love that kind of thing. So it was, I was like, and especially always like very fascinated by photography. And I don't know, I can't remember it was the first time I saw. It, but like every time I would go to someone's house, I would ask, "Can I see your photography album?" So I think that's where I started to get uh, into photography. But you know, I never thought I would be a photographer. But I think your period in London really kind of awaked this feeling for you, Yeah, right? so I kind of like when I was 17, growing up in this really strict religion, mm. and my family also grew up in this community. And for me, it was very hard to not be able to be myself. And then I was like in 17, you're kind of, you know, the age you want to explore. And then luckily I found this program to come to Vienna where I could uh, study German and then... Studying like some classic music is in the part of the church. I was studying classic music every Sunday, so then that's how I managed to get out of there. And it's like, Mom, I'm going to, to Vienna to study music. And she's like, Oh, you go for two weeks, I'm sure you're gonna be back. Because I was like, you know, like I was a kid that I was always afraid to go out, and then I was like always home, you know. So it was, um, when I, um, yeah, at that age, I, I was like, You're going to Vienna, and then. I stayed in Vienna for five months and then I ended up coming to London for a program as well, which was like Alper. And then I was in, in New Barnet, which is like the end of Piccadilly Line. So I was Alper of a dog. So I was taking care of a dog. And then I had plenty of time to go around and take pictures, you know. 
And then I was doing my my diary, like learning English, and then also here I had plenty of time to go around and you have like London have so many like free galleries and stuff. So I was seeing a lot of things. So I have so much freedom here. Also like far from for this community that always I felt caged, you know. And then here I had like I had so much time free, and then I could actually see art because where I come from we. You know, we didn't have that. So then you could go to like National Gallery and spend hours looking into these paintings. Like, how is it possible to painting? Like, this light comes from the window. I was, I was very fascinated. So I would spend a lot of hours there watching those paintings. I think most of the of my work now that it's uh, inspired by paintings as well. So I was trying to like get this perfect light, natural light that comes for some direction that almost gives shape to the images and. Uh, yeah, so it must be very special for you then to have an exhibition here in London, right? Which is a city which is so important for you. So tell us about this. I mean, especially this beautiful space, actually, the embassy. For those who don't know the Brazilian embassy in London, it, it, it's it's a very beautiful building, actually. Yeah, it's it's a, it was very special to exhibit at the embassy because it's also very close to the National yes. um, Portrait <laughs> Gallery, where I was spending every time would come in from New Barnet, I would come to the National Gallery and sit down there watching the paintings, you know. So it was like a lot of nostalgic. And then when we did the opening, I was very emotional about this because it was like so many memories. And I would never thought that one day I would actually show my work, this reconnection back to Brazil and this special place, you know. And the photos, they're all called Baptismo, baptism, right? Yeah. Portuguese. T tell us about the name, because of course you had this religious upbringing. But how are you using the word Baptismo here? What what does it mean for you? Well, I think Baptismo is a new beginning, you know? Mm. It's like a, a newborn. And then I think for me, coming out from this religious strict religion that uh, we're not allowed to be in nature, be yourself. And I actually have this return to Brazil where I kind of didn't, I thought I would never go back to Brazil because, you know, when you're 17, you had so much traumas and fears. And I was like, London is the place. I have found my freedom. Why are you going back there? You know, I didn't want to access my uh, my trauma, you know, mm -hmm. like I didn't want to feel caged again. So I was kind of was like, I'm, I'm not going back home, so I'm going to stay here. But when I actually, like, by after six years living in the UK, I thought, like, I actually need to go back. And by instinct, it was not, like, a rational thing. I must go back because I need to, like, confront this fear. I was like, I need to actually know Brazil because being 16 years in London is a lot. And then mm -hmm. I don't know, like, my ancestors. Like, I don't know about my family. So we actually never had an, a conversation, like, to find out who they are. So I was, like, questioning myself. And then when I went back there, I did this trip around Brazil from north to the south where I connect with nature, with people, trying to connect with my ancestrals. And and I kind of was very spiritual in a way, journey, mm. you know, like to try and find yourself and get the answers for, the, for things that you kind of don't know. And I thought it was so special being there. And then the first time I went to the Amazon, my granddad, who has a native blood, his my great-grandmother, she was native. And so... I was so special to be on that place. And then the day I arrived, my granddad died. Wow. So, and then I think I did this photograph, which is on an exhibition where I started the whole series. She's in underwater and she's kind of 
if you look at the image, looks like she's going through another dimension. And when I took that photo, for me, I could see my dad, like granddad, going to another dimension. You know, that mm. made me feel like it's okay. You know, like it made me accept like his the circle. You mm. know, and then I was like, also, I was like, it was a very meaningful that image to me that I bring it up all this series. What is baptism? Is like this this new conscious mind, and then question yourself and then I think this series is pretty much a new baptism for me because a lot of things that I was not concerned and doing this reconnection again with nature with Brazil and the people yeah it's, it's I mean it's a beautiful selection of imagery one I, I told you before the interview I loved I think there's a man in the river wearing kind of some sort of sports sunglasses and, and a beautiful necklace I mean that that image I don't know I thought it was quite special it's quite shiny as well and yeah, uh-huh. that that image was like in my preview show, which was in Sao Paulo. It was mm. the last image because mm. most of the photos in the city people faces. Mm. Because I, like my grandmother, for instance, I didn't, you know, when I had a time to meet her in person mm. and actually had a, a conversation with her, she had Alzheimer's, so we couldn't connect anymore. So I felt like always my family was a mystery and mm. never knew like the background, what they went through, all their fears, you know. We never felt so close. Was very superficial, mm. and I think this image and um, and we also with the native from the back there, it's like this whole mystery behind this whole connection with the family that you don't know much, you know. Mm. So I think this image of like the guy, the the guide, uh, which is wearing the sunglasses, it's he's very brave, you know. He's very, I think he's very like. Um, he feels very proud there, you know, mm-hmm. and also wearing these like sunglasses, which is very modern. I love the contrast to the exactly. necklace, you know, quite a, tri- a tribal kind of exactly. necklace. Exactly, and, and I think it looks kind of very fashionable, but mm. it like shows up like the the two places. He's not, you know, he's in both places. You know what I mean? Mm. It's a kind of like a political image as well, so it make you make you question it a lot. And listen, I know you're based in São Paulo. You know, and of course, I love magazines as well and everything. And actually, I stumbled across a beautiful shoot you did for El Decoration Brazil. So is that something you do as well? Do you do you, do you work sometimes with magazines and titles? Because I love that side of things as well. Well, when I got back to Brazil, El Brazil invited me to do my first editorial and uh, went really well. And then since then, I started collaborate a lot of with fashion magazines in Brazil, and especially L Brazil, uh, which has this. They trust my work, and then they all give me space to create something between art and fashion, which I love. It you know, almost like a documentary in between as well. So it's a mix of like art, fashion, and documentary. I like to create a narrative to the images. And we are seeing more of that as well, right? Even in the Brazilian print industry, of course. You know, we don't see as many magazines as in the past, but the ones that are there, they're quite beautiful products in a way. They're becoming like, you know, like L and, and the shoots you've done. Yeah, the L, it's it's not the same paper as here in the UK. So it's more like a fine arts mm-hmm. magazine, like a cuff book table magazine. So it's it's a very special to the whole process to work with them. They're really special the way how they created the images, how the paper they choose and everything. That's amazing. Listen, muito obrigado. Thank you so much. Obrigado. <laughs> Thank you.
And finally on the show, we head back to Switzerland, this time to speak with the owner of a charming kiosk in Rougemont. Art kiosk Rougemont sells rare art books and magazines, tobacco, cigars and candies, and is also an exhibition space with a focus on all things print. I spoke with owner Marc Junco about the incredible space. I am the owner of uh, Kiosk Rougemont, which is eventually spelled art.ki.osk.com. So that's how you find us in Rougemont, Switzerland, Bikestad. I think Rougemont is, a, is an extraordinary village uh, for, for, for many different reasons and has great quality. And I have a partner who's American named Chris, who is just like I am a a big, big lover and believer of the region and an avid lover of books and imprint. And the idea of opening Chaos came about over time last year, over many, many conversations on art and literature and books, magazines. I am in Switzerland much more, so I'm, I'm very much on the operating end of things and uh, day-to-day business and um, the kiosk almost feels like home, away from home, uh, like an ideal space created for, for, for books and for art. It was a kiosk. It, it was a real village kiosk catering to the community, the local community. Rougemont is just at the border between um, French-speaking population of Canton de Vaux and German, Swiss-German dialect-speaking population. Um, in the Berner Oberland. So Rougemont is really at the, at the border. And in the village, we have English-speaking people, French-speaking people, German-speaking people, Swiss-German, people out of Geneva, uh, all cities and all corners of Switzerland, Greeks, Dutch, uh, Americans, French. I mean, it's endless. And we do service the local community, uh, the villagers, and the surrounding communities by by offering papers in multiple languages, at least five or six languages, and the same applies to magazines. But it's quite recent uh, since you kind of took control of this local kiosk. You said last year, right? Yes, we took over last year in the first half of the year, and the place had been abandoned, literally abandoned. It's an 1800 chalet sitting proud um, at the entrance of the village, at walking distance from um, the train station, the local train. It was a kiosk, as I said, run by this couple, which had a reputation locally for being uh, basically working and living out of the same uh, quarters. They lived upstairs, they worked downstairs, and they um, were there 24-7, and people would come at any time of day and night, seven days a week, weekends included and buy a paper, buy a lottery ticket, buy an ice cream, whatever. The place was a, a conundrum. The place was a, a total mess. But they serviced the community. And then when they left or when the kiosk closed, it was empty for a number of years, at least three years. And the reactions I have uh, collected firsthand since we've reopened have been wonderful. People have been really touched by the simple idea that the kiosk, their kiosk, would be um, in full uh, swing and operating 
enabling them to to come and buy uh, newspapers in many different languages, to buy magazines from the four corners of the world on all types of topics and subjects. And then the surprise, of course, is what we've done with the kiosk, simplifying on one hand the concept of what a kiosk is in a, in a traditional sense with a, with a very limited uh, selection of items. So no more lottery tickets and uh, no more ice cream. And, but adding art and adding books, loads and loads of books, some literature, some poetry, some fiction, but a lot of a lot of theme books with a strong, strong emphasis on art, visual art, contemporary art, 20th century art, the heroes of the 20th century, and the artists of today, the artists that make news today and that are in the, in the public eye today. Because we do work with uh, wonderful publishers in Switzerland and abroad, and I select the books we want to represent so that I can really stand behind our choices. And when somebody comes in and wants to talk about books and art in the same phrase, I can really stand behind our choices and I can also guide them. I can guide them through our selections and sort of sense what their sensibility is. I do the same with magazines in a more restrained way. I have a I have a real interest in architecture and gardening, and I have an interest in uh, traveling and photography and fashion. So, besides the books and the catalog, uh, we have a really really wonderful selection of uh, very very cool and sometimes obscure or self-published magazines that sometimes are not so easy to find in the in the marketplace and sometimes only exist for. Uh, a split second. They exist for a year or two and then they disappear again. Mark, a question. What's your background? Where, where does your passion for print come from? Have you ever worked with publishing or was always kind of more retail? I was, um, I was always uh, in arts, professionally speaking. Um, my, my profession is art dealing. And so it's, it's, it's obvious that it's easy for me to, uh, to make a connection between uh, uh, the visual arts and anything that is in print about art and artists or art criticism. I mean, the second mini show we've done, mini in scale, but almost feels like a, like a mini retrospective is a, is a show of photographs by the wonderful uh, Japanese artist Daido Moriyama. It's a show we've just had over the, the holidays. I selected 25 photographs from different bodies of work and different decades that I, I felt represent his work well to a new audience. And to accompany the photographs, I worked very intensely over a long period of time preparing an exquisite curated selection of uh, monographs on Moriyama, some uh, uh, being reprints of titles that have become ultra sought after and rare and uh, others being recent uh, publications on him because uh, there's one thing that remarkably represents Moriyama and his mantra is to be published. Since uh, the beginning of his career in the 60s, he's had one thing and one thing mostly in mind, 
was to be have his have his work in print and published in magazines, in books, and uh, over the years and the decades, a few publications have become multiple hundreds, a few books have become more than 300 monographs. I mean, it's remarkable how uh, in print characterizes uh, this artist and his and his uh, six decade long career. So we've had. Um, We've had a wonderful selection of Moriyama monographs, all sent and shipped for the occasion of his exhibition and to accompany the exhibition. And we've printed a beautiful calendar, 2023 luxurious, oversized calendar with a cover page and 12 images each for a month of uh, the year and a color phone at the end. So it's a calendar slash a catalog to accompany the show and the presentation of the books. And this really is one of the main activities of the kiosk. Is there a busier season as well? You were talking about the holidays. You know, it's my impression that perhaps Rougemont, especially in the winter months, is that when things happen or is something that you see the whole year round? No, unfortunately not. I mean, Rougemont, let's be realistic, is a gorgeous village, mm -hmm. very well preserved. It's part of a collection of villages leading up to Kstad and beyond, world famous now, not so much for its skiing because of global warming, mm. but, but definitely illustrious history throughout the second half of the 20th century, glamour, jet set, uh, nature, a bit of skiing. It's famous in Switzerland, in the four corners of the country, it's famous abroad. But those villages are small, and Rougemont has a stronghold of 500 souls. So when it's quiet, it's super quiet. And you can focus on the next project and the next exhibition of books or uh, works of art you want to do. Or you can simply pick up a book and, or a magazine and read, because you won't be disturbed hours on end and days on end. So it, it's a very seasonal traffic. And, and you remain and this, open the whole year round? We adapt. I mean, we're still learning. This is a humbling experience. We're learning as we go. So we will remain open with limited hours of season because we have this responsibility and towards the local community and they expect us to deliver the paper to them or their weekly magazines. But the exhibitions and the presentation of works of art with books and vice versa, hand in hand, always carefully curated together, those will happen at key moments of the year in high season. And to answer your question, high season is December, January, February, and again, June, July, August. And this is when we will have exhibitions. And this is when we will present novelties and tables covered with wonderful titles that we have time in the low season to research and to, to put together. Mark, can you just, I mean, you, know, you don't need to be so detailed, but can you describe this physical space of the kiosk for me? First of all, because I love the logo, by the way. I think it's very cool. The, I don't know. I just love it, the color and everything. But if you don't mind describing, is the art gallery in a different space or is all together, the magazines and the art? I just want to kind of have an idea in my head. So the kiosk is on the ground floor and it has a, a door from the street. It's on the main street of the village, and it's very close by the train station. And people either stop and park their car or they just walk by. They get, come through the entrance, and the main space 
is a rectangle. On the left, you have kiosk merchandise and the welcome desk. You can choose uh, your paper, you can choose your magazine, you can choose a very small selection of tobacco, etc. And then 80% of the space is devoted to um, the display of books and uh, exquisite, not-so-common magazines. And then in the back of that main room, you have what I call the music room, where we play uh, records all day long. And there's a huge sofa and people sit down and listen to the music or ask for us to play something when they know us. And uh, they can um, read uh, the paper or look at a book and a magazine. We make the occasional coffee, but this is completely optional and this is not something. We don't function as a coffee shop. It's just something we do for people that come on a regular basis and know we make good coffee and ask for it with a smile. Oh, nice. <laughs> and then we go upstairs. And then we enter the world of very small people because it's a tiny chalet on two stories from the 1800s. So anybody that is reasonably tall, men or women, will laugh when they go upstairs. They will. First thing I always tell people is, uh, watch your head. <laughs> I say it twice. I say it when they come up the stairs or when they go down the stairs. It's always the same. It's like a ritual. Watch your head, please. And um, we have three rooms upstairs, and we use these rooms to display books in vitrines that have been built during the renovation or uh, on the large farm-style tables. And we have a few walls, not too many. So the, um, the capacity to show art, at least um, the wall space, is limited, which also indicates where we are and what the chalet was built for initially, and it's not a white cube. We find solutions to show art with the constraints we have, which I think is super dynamic and super interesting every time. Thank you very much, Mark, and I look forward to visit soon. That's it for this week's show. My thanks as ever to our editors Adam Heaton and Steph Chungu. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to email me, fernando, at fpandmonaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. You can subscribe to the stack as well at monaco.com, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Before we go, a little song for you. Patch your boys, opportunities. You've been listening to the stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. <laughs>